0: Welcome everyone, it's it's a delight to be here with you this evening uh, to connect with all of you. And as I began the meditation together, uh, some of you might know, I was just acknowledging it's it's been a day, it's been quite a day, huh? And just as a way to, to begin, just to get a sense of each other here, this is something that we did at the beginning of the, the the silent meditation is if you haven't already, or you could place it in once again because maybe your heart has changed. It's just to share a little bit in the chat, maybe just a, a word or two or three or four of of how today is landing and how, how how is your system right now in terms of this and just to share a little bit. I think it can be a, also a sweet way to get a sense of each other here. And a sense of our community together here. Yeah, thank you for that, Nanette. The more settled, but sad about the 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 dead woman. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and thanks for that, Ellen. Yeah, worried about our country. Overstimulated, overwhelmed, overactive heart, anxiety, exhaustion, exhaustion. I hear you on that one, distracted while trying to focus on my job. (laughs) I feel better after meditating. Ah, that's so sweet. Scared. Nice, and feeling relief to sit together. Yeah. Body is activated, mind distracted. Glad to be here. Yeah. Joyful. Yeah, joyful regarding Georgia, scared regarding DC. Thanks for that, Charles Feels like there's peace in the eye of the storm. Mm. Yeah, nice. And grateful to live in a safe place, safer place, yearning to reach out and connect, grateful for Georgia. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for sharing that. And, And I invite you to scroll through. And sometimes what I do is sometimes... Uh, what my mind does especially on computer screens it's like i read something and it only enters right here in in here and what's it like just to allow these statements just to uh, uh to allow them into the heart in some manner as a way of uh, connecting with uh, each other in our place here together and for me um you know sometimes on uh days like today and i, I also want to just Uh, keep it open. Like I don't want to assume that this has been a a tumultuous day for everyone here. I I think it's important to acknowledge that things land differently for different people, also dependent upon where you're calling in from and how you're situated and things like that. So I want to honor the full range of how things land for us so that there's not a particular one way that we quote unquote are supposed to feel. And so for me, I just need to talk about my own experience here, is uh, when uh, days like this happen and they impact my heart in particular ways, I'm reminded of the context of the Buddha. He lived in tumultuous times, right? There was famine. King Bimbisara, who was a friend of his, was, uh, uh, his this king, his son, I think, imprisoned him And then he died in prison. There was all this political upheaval that was going on. The Sakyan clan that the Buddha was from was was nearly entirely wiped out during the Buddha's uh, life. It was after he was fully awakened. His cousin, his cousin tried to kill him. There's so many stories of Brahmins trying to discredit the Buddha. His life... (laughs) externally was not that peaceful. His heart maybe was peaceful, but not the external circumstances. It was a, a very tumultuous time. And when I reflect back on that, one of the things that strikes me is to reflect, oh, all this is going on around him. And yet he has this clear vision that, oh, what I need to do is to dispel greed, hatred, and delusion in the world. And to engage in these practices, oh, this is how I'm going to relate to the tumult around, around me. To have that aspiration. Oh, can I free this heart? And can I be in communities where there's this freeing of one's heart? So for me, that's what brings me back to settling into the Dharma and into this practice is, oh, this is this is what's needed. And also it can be a great place to find safety. Like there was a, a friend of mine was practicing in Myanmar in 1988. When I say the year 1988, maybe some of you know what happened in Burma in 1988, 8888, which was there was a protest going on and there was a violent crackdown over, it was estimated over 10,000 people were killed in in Burma around this. And my friend was, um, she was practicing in Burma at the Mahasi Center, who the main teacher then was Saida Upendita. Saida Upendita opened his own center after that. And the U.S. government was encouraging all U.S. citizens to come back from Myanmar. and, And the the Mahasi Center uh, uh, started to be emptied of all foreign people, foreigners from uh, 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 from outside of Myanmar. Yet she stayed. And right before many of them left, you have to understand, Saita uh, Upandita was uh, an interesting fellow, and I, I really appreciated him. And he said, Why are you all leaving? Do you think you're going to go find safety over there or over there? and really asking the question, where, where are you gonna find safety? And he said, oh, this is our practice is to find safety in the, in the Dhamma, in the Dharma. I don't know if I would have stayed or not, I just wanna be honest, <laughs> but there's something inspiring about that of like, oh, this, this is a place where I can find safety. And for me, a place of safety is also a place where I feel like I can move forward and not just feel helpless. So, in light of that, I, I, uh, I'd like to continue to um, this evening to share the talk I was intending to talk uh, give you, and to share with you. And I, I was, I've been torn, but I think reflecting on the Buddha's life, I, I feel inspired to, to come back to how can we engage. In the spiritual path that that I deeply feel can make a difference in this world. So that we're creating a world that's not acting as much out of greed, hatred, and delusion. Like, I don't want to do that. And I want to find a path and a practice where I can bring something different into the world. So in light of that, what I wanted to share with you about is, um, this process that we're engaged in on this path, which is to begin to know what we don't know. It's the learning process, isn't it? I didn't know how to ride a bike and now I do. Or it could be something in practice. Wow, it's interesting. When I, when I get nervous, there's a slight tension, uh, clenching in my jaw. Oh, interesting. And now I know that. And by knowing that, something different starts to emerge. Oh, I can navigate anxiety or frustration in a different way. Oh, here's a bodily piece to it. And this process of beginning to know what we don't know, you could say, is the process of dispelling ignorance. The Pali word, Pali being the early scriptural language of, of Buddhism, is avidya. And this is one of the, the a core way that the Buddha talked about uh, uh, crossing over to uh, release the heart from reactivity. And when I talk about this, I I wanna be clear that this isn't about blaming, rather it's about being accountable to these hearts and minds. And I wanna come back to this framework of also stepping out of blame and into accountability because it's gonna interweave a little bit here. So beginning to know what I don't know, what we don't know, or beginning to perceive what I don't perceive. And it is a specific kind of not knowing. It's not like the ignorance in terms of informational knowledge, like not knowing how many pounds are in a ton or not knowing the distance between the earth and the sun or the chemical formula of salt. The Buddha wasn't so interested in those kinds of not knowing even before Google, he was not interested in those forms of not knowing. Rather, his heart was set on the not knowing the ignorance that was intertwined with suffering, suffering in particular, that perpetuated suffering. An ignorance that at times was active in the sense of help perpetuate dynamics of suffering in my own life and also systemically. So this is the first thing I wanna point out is a not knowing that's connected with the perpetuation of suffering. And then the second piece, it's a not knowing connected with how my heart and mind perceive the world. So I want to give an example of this and then move on to this a little bit, especially around perception. A simple example, and probably many of you know this, things are impermanent. That is not a profound philosophical idea. I just want to point out, like, you've probably heard that before. You're in this Buddhist group but it's different when I can deeply perceive it and embody it in a way that transforms my heart. Like I know, I know intellectually this body's impermanent, but that's different than coming to terms with the fact that the nature of this body is impermanent and, and changes. And I suffer when that perception isn't alive, when I expect and I want this body to always function in the way I want it to. And I'm just fighting impermanence instead of skillfully responding with a a sense of this is the way it is. And you could say that's a living ignorance, isn't it? It's like, I don't, I don't want to really take that in that this body's impermanent, that it's afflicted at times by sickness, old age, sickness, aging and death. But to, to actually embody that I can start to respond to this ever flowing in permanent body in a really different way. I'm dispelling the ignorance, that kind of not knowing in a way that's gonna free my heart. And it's important that it happens on this visceral level, embodied level. So we got two aspects, a not perceiving, and it's, it's, it's connected with perpetuating suffering. And then I wanna bring in a third aspect and then give a bunch of examples. And this is gonna be the trickiest one is that I can see how my not knowing, it, it, it perpetuates suffering both on a, uh, an individual level and a systemic level. And I think this is really important. And this is something that's really alive for me in this, uh, in this Dharma practice for me. And I first wanna point out, right? I can, I can see experience from either lens an individual lens or a systemic lens. Like the teacher, some of you might know Ruth King. She talks about stars and constellations. And I love this analogy. It's like, you look up in the sky and you can frame what you're seeing as these particular stars I'm seeing or particular constellations. One view is not better than the other, but they elucidate, they illuminate certain aspects or certain dynamics that happen in our experience. So as I, 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 say, I mentioned, you know I, I suffer when the perception of the body is impermanent. When that perception isn't alive, I suffer in the ways that I told you about. I want to point out that that ignorance of my own body is intertwined and can also start to get entangled with a systemic dimension. Because from this idea that this body should function it should look a certain way it should be a certain way our minds or i could say my mind creates a whole world around this right because around this ignorance around bodies what starts to be implied by my ignorance is that the bodies that are valuable are really the human bodies are the are the ones that look healthy because I'm doing that to myself. The body I want is the healthy body. I would rather have a body that looks young. And I'd be foolish to say that that's just about my perception of my body, My mind is looking at other bodies. And there's a whole system in society that's reinforcing that. That's a systemic dimension. Like there was one study. It was a large study. There was uh, it was data from over seven hundred thousand participants, and they were flashing images of people appearing to be different ages, and it was uh, looking at implicit bias against older-looking bodies, and uh, and implicit bias towards younger-looking bodies. And to keep it very simple, right? Implicit bias are these attitudes that the mind has and how the mind, you could say, initially reacts, which most of the time goes unnoticed. And the unnoticed is really important around this. So often below the radar of awareness. So I want to point out ageism is a real thing in our society. You know, the bias against older looking people is real. And it's interesting when they've shown studies against the backdrop of other biases, like racial bias and biased uh, uh, around, um, the LGBTQI, it, it will in particular, around gays and lesbians. The, the bias around um, older-looking bodies has uh, barely budged, maybe even gotten worse over the last four or five decades compared to racial bias or uh, uh, biased against um, uh, gays and lesbians. I'm not saying that, that it's somehow worse than these other categories. I'm just talking about the, the, the flexibility of this implicit bias. And I want to point out that this is different than explicit bias. This is different than what I tell people. So the explicit bias that contrasted the most from the implicit bias was found in older people. Does this make sense? Older people were more biased implicitly around older bodies than other people, which is a trip. And I want to point out, we can have narratives that you know, it's like, you know, the, you know the saying, some of my best friends are older people. <laughs> <laughs> right. I can say that, but there's still the bias. When I start to dispel the ignorance, the avidya I have in relationship to this body, it has systemic ramifications. I can help undermine how this society works. This has ramifications. Think of the pandemic. Who are the people who are getting uh, one One category of people who are uh, getting killed from the virus? Older people. So this is a real thing that impacts the world we live in. So again, ignorance. It's an ignorance that perpetu- perpetuates suffering. And it's intertwined with how we perceive. And there's both an individual dimension and a systemic dimension. I'm not to blame, but I'm accountable. I think this is what we get also from the teaching of not self. This is something that we we kind of uh, inherit in some way. And then we're accountable for it. Okay. Let's go in a little bit more into perception. Ready for the next step? Here we go. I'd like to share with you uh, a quote from the Zen Master Dogen, which I think is around perception. And uh, it's from a, a fascicle, uh, an essay of his called The uh, uh, the Genjo Koan. He's a, a 13th century Zen Master. And I want to share it with you, then go through it, and then we're going to tie it into some more examples around avidya or ignorance. So he begins this passage by saying, when the dharma does not fill your whole body and mind, you think it is already sufficient. When dharma fills your body and mind, you understand that something is missing. So I want to stop with just those two sentences and hopefully your mind's saying, what, shouldn't it be the other way? So remember, he's a Zen master. He likes to confuse us. Like, this is why I like Vipassana. is like, hopefully things are clearer. Uh, So you'd think that when the Dharma does not fill your whole body and mind, you would feel like something's missing. But he's saying the opposite. He's saying that when you're not fully realizing the Dharma, you think that everything's already complete. Yet when you're filled with this practice, so he's turning around, when you're filled this, with this practice, what you realize and understand is that something is missing. So he's trying to mix things up, okay? So, so the depth of dharma shows when I realize, wow, something's missing here. Something's missing in the way I perceive the world. And then he gives some examples to, to an example to explain this. He says, for example, when you sail out in a boat to the middle of an ocean, Maybe some of you have done that. You go out on a boat, you're in the middle of the ocean. Where no land is in sight and view the four directions, the ocean looks circular and does not look any other way. Maybe you've experienced that, right? It just seems like the ocean is circular. But then Dogen says, but the ocean is neither round nor square. The features are infinite in variety. It is like a palace. It is like a jewel. It only looks circular as far as you can see at that time. All things are like this. Though there are many features in the dusty world, in the world beyond conditions, you see and understand only what your eye of practice can reach. In order to learn the nature of the myriad things, you must know that although they may look round or square, The other features of oceans and mountains are infinite in variety. Whole worlds are there. It is so not only around you, but also directly beneath your feet or in a drop of water. Do you hear what he's pointing to? No matter which way I look or I perceive the world, there's going to be a perception of the world that's missing. The ocean looks round to me, but to another being, it might look radically different. And part of practice is remembering that. As he says, whole worlds are there. It's not only around you, but also directly beneath your feet or in a drop of water. Whole worlds are there in experience, not just the singular world of my perception of experience. So let's uh, let me bring up an example of this. Uh, just um, I need one pause to uh, bring this up. So just uh, I just need a one minute. So now we'll have a one minute break to <laughs> stretch your body. I need to get, get this image up. Just one second. Okay, can you, can you see that, Nico? Okay, great. So uh, I'm wondering if you'd be willing to put in the chat box, what do you see? What do you see in that? If you'd be willing to put in the chat box, do you see a duck? Do you see a rabbit? What do you see there? It's just sweet to kind of look and and see what you you see there. And I want to point out, you know, we could be doing the same kind of exercise with with sounds and sensations. So I do want to say that there's something even limiting about doing this visually. Yeah, so putting that in there. And then let me see if I can bring the next one up. Just one more image. Now what do you see? What is that? What do you see what kind, of, what kind of animal is that? Is that a horse or a seal or a donkey? or what do you see? And if you're willing to, to put that in the chat box there, It is perception. It's the mind perceiving here? Can we have the first one? What do you see? Second one, what do you see? Stop the sharing here. i am be here to see the chats here. Isn't this great? Seal, horse, seal, donkey. Horse, then a seal. Donkey, horse. Just to scroll up and down, we see uh, um, and how they can change a little bit of what... Um, I like that sky with a duck rabbit. That's great. <laughs> Goose. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> there are different perceptions here. And what I want to point out about avidya or ignorance in terms of not perceiving it's um, again, I want to bring it back. Like here we had the first one of rabbit or duck and it's, it's not that the, the Buddha was saying, okay, you got to stick on the duck. Forget the rabbit. <laughs> what Dogen, the Zen master is saying to us is that sometimes I need to change perception or seeing a different way, because if I don't, it's going to lead to suffering. Please don't lose the thread of suffering here. I mean, I like the duck, rabbit, horse, seal, or I know there's some differences of opinion here, but what those were, <laughs> But it's, what makes this juicy is that it's connected with suffering, my individual suffering, but also how I might be complicit in some systemic forms of suffering. So some examples, more examples of this. I, um, many years ago, I was living in London for a little while, London, England, and I was in a uh, it was, it was such a cool community. It was a community for people living on the streets, mostly. And when I was there, one of the guys I got to know who had spent a lot of his life living on the streets, all of a sudden uh, got a flat, got an apartment. I mean, it was a huge thing to have a steady place to live. And um, we were like, hey, we have to celebrate. Let's uh, celebrate. So we took him out to um, a food, food, uh, kind of food that some of his friends knew he liked, which um, is classic if you've ever been to the UK, is uh, fish and chips. So we went to the local fish and chips place. And we walked in there, and I thought this was a great idea. You maybe know where this goes, maybe not. And uh, as he walked in, I was like, man, he's nervous. What's up with that? You know, here we are celebrating. And he just looked out of place. Like, he was really nervous. And then I noticed that um, he couldn't read the menu up above. It was kind of up there, up above, and he couldn't read what the menu was saying. And and it was like, oh, I began to know what I didn't know. And, of course, I responded. I started to just, I wanted to ease his his anxiety. So I just began to read out loud as if I was talking to myself what I saw on the menu so that he could hear me in some way. So I think this is a a good example. You know, on on one level, all that was happening was I was noticing relational stress, and I wanted to embody compassion, and I wanted to to help him out there. And and the reason I I bring this this example up is you know, uh, and this is going to complicate a little bit of what I'm sharing with you, but we could see it on an individual level. So what's going on an individual level is I'm with an individual because he's suffering because his mind has created a sense of self that's based on this notion that he's less than other people because he can't read and that he's a bad person because of it. And that You know, maybe from a Buddhist perspective, yes, taking up a spiritual practice could help him dispel that ignorance. And I want to acknowledge that's a really important part of our practice. Like, oh, yeah, to dispel these notions of ourselves that can lead to suffering. And for me, it's seeing the suffering of another and responding to it. That's a really important lens. That's seeing the stars. But there's also a constellation here, isn't there, that really was important for me to see If I'm committed to the spiritual path, which is that um, I have the knowledge that not everyone reads, but just like with my body, I don't deeply embody that. It's up here, but I forget it often because I haven't embodied that I also live in a world with people who can't read. I assume that the world is filled with people just like me, people who can read. And just like with my body, the mind creates a certain world around this ignorance, just like it did with the body. and, And what's the world that gets created? People who read are more valuable. This society values people who can read more than those who can't. And those who can't read, well, I don't recognize them. Society doesn't recognize them. And remember, 14% of the U.S. population can't read. It's a recent statistic. I think um, in the last year. This is from 2003, so it might be dated, but given the increase in income inequality, it could be worse. 50% of adults in this country cannot read a book written at an eighth grade level. Three out of four people on welfare can't read. And 50% of unemployed people between the ages of 16 and 21 can't read well enough to be considered functionally literate. And to remember how lack of literacy intersects with poverty and class and race. And it raises these complicated questions of who has access to education opportunities and who doesn't. And when, I, and when I am lost in the ignorance around individuals who have a difficulty reading, in some ways I'm reinforcing the system of the invisibility or the, the lack of recognition of people who can't read. And I want to be clear. This is where I want to come back to this. And this is where I, I, I really want to be clear about this, is that this is not about blame it's about seeing if I can be accountable as a member of the society. So it's an opportunity for me rather than just I should feel guilty. Right? There are whole worlds there. There's my quote here. That it's so important for my mind to see. Just going back to what Dogen said about that. Right? Whole worlds are there. It is so not only around you, but also directly beneath your feet or in a drop of water. All of these different points of view. Another story that helps clarify this. Just giving a few examples of both kind of individual and systemic. And you'll see I'm leaning a little bit more in the systemic just because sometimes we don't hear this as much. So a friend of mine, he's this... Uh, He's this white guy and his car was in the shop getting fixed. And so uh, he had to get to work. He went to the uh, car rental place and there were some choices, not a lot, but he's like, Hey, I think I'm going to get it. I think I'm going to rent a truck for today. And so um, he gets this pickup truck and then, then he has to drive to pick up his colleague uh, for a work assignment that they have. And his colleague is this older Af- African-American man. And when he arrives and pulls up um, he looks over and sees that his colleague, this older african American man is uh, has this startled look, a bewildered look when his colleague pulls up in this truck, this white guy, and his colleague says to him, he says, "Wow, you know, he says this to my friend, you know he says, "Wow, this is really difficult for me, given all the." kind of the intense, horrific experiences I've had around white guys driving, up, driving in pickup trucks. But something really got struck there. And there was the moment for my friend, this process that we're involved in, beginning to know what he didn't know on a visceral and embodied level. This is the process of dispelling ignorance. Oh, there are whole worlds here. Not just my perspective, these other perspectives. And of course, then he responds skillfully. He makes so much sense to him. He says, you know, that makes so much sense. I'm going to go get another car from the rental place and I'll be back. Let's make this work. This is an important aspect of dispelling ignorance of a not-knowing. Right? On the systemic level, it's a not-knowing, not-understanding that there's this white-dominant culture that has a whole 400-year history of racialization that impacts us differently Maybe the same in the sense that there's suffering collectively around this, but different flavors of suffering and different degrees of suffering. And I want to be clear, this process of dispelling ignorance in this approach is situational and is within certain contexts. So wisdom has to be fluid here. I want to be clear, it's not that all trucks are bad and that you're a bad person white person if you're driving a truck or that all black people are going to be uncomfortable in trucks driven by white men it's not getting into this world of generalization it's being able to meet this moment and the people that we engage with in a way that's transformative and and dispelling the ignorance, the particular ignorance that's arising in that context I'm not here to kind of give you like rights and wrongs I'm here as an invitation to be responsive in the world that we we live in. And this is why relationships are so important. And that's why in the story, what's so important is there was connection there so they could have the conversation. It's really so important in this way. And so I wanna come back to this blame and accountability a little bit because I think it fits in especially to this story here, and then to move on from there as well. So, I want to read to you a, a quote from um uh Bell Hooks from a, a essay of hers called Moving Past Blame. And she's talking about the systemic level of suffering and how we come into it through our individual relationship to it. She says, dualistic thinking, which is at the core of dominator thinking, teaches people that there's always the oppressed and the oppressor, a victim and a victimizer. Hence, there is always someone to blame. Moving past the ideology of blame to a politics of accountability is a difficult move to make in a society where almost all political organizing, whether conservative or radical, has been structured around the binary of good guys and bad guys. Accountability is a much more complex issue. A politics of blame allows a contemporary white person to make statements like, my never my family never owned slaves, or slavery is over. Why can't they just get over it? A contrast of politics of accountability would emphasize that all white people benefit from the privileges accrued from racist exploitation past and present, and therefore, are accountable for changing and transforming white supremacy and racism. And then she continues. Yeah, and then she says Accountability is a more expansive concept because it opens a field of possibility wherein we are all compelled. To move beyond blame, to see where our responsibility lies. So I think this is quite important: is to is to see that there's an uh, to see if we can be accountable rather than to blame ourselves. To step out of that, and part of that is to notice how this particular kind of ignorance, like in the the last one a kind of not knowing. When I don't know, it can have a kind of momentum to it if I'm not willing to respond moment to moment. So how can something that I don't know perpetuate something? So let me just give one example of this. My partner and I, we live in uh, Flagstaff, Arizona, and we're at, um, we're at, 7,000 feet, but it's still quite dry here. And so we have a, a big water catchment tank. It's, it's unlike where uh, many of you are maybe there in, in uh, Massachusetts. And uh, uh, we catch water from our from our roof. And it's great. It fills up and then we use the water to water the garden. It's interesting though, because what can happen with the water tank is that maybe one of us turns it on, so it's on. No, somebody turns it on. But um, there's a dynamic that happens that if we ignore it and we remain ignorant that it's on and running, it drains the whole tank. It's like our ignoring keeps it going. And it's it's only until one of us says, oh, it's on, we need to do something about it, that the situation changes. Some of our ignorance works like that systemically, where it's going to continue to drain the tank of our society until we make little steps to remember that it's on and to turn it off. So again, avidya, not knowing, a not knowing that perpetuates suffering. So it's intertwined with that. It's connected with perceiving. When I start to see that there's whole worlds out there in a skillful way, I'm engaged in the process of dispelling ignorance, both individually and systemically. I can turn off the tank, both individually and systemically. So may our our practice of dispelling ignorance lead to the liberation of all beings. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.